Freight Find podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT, and today I'm joined by Mark Brazo. He's the head of logistics at Fiat Chrysler Automobiles North America. Mark has spent over 20 years in supply chain leadership roles in supply chain technology, strategy, and implementation, as well as order to delivery fulfillment initiatives as both a consultant and within multinational corporations. He's led teams on both sides of the supply chain purchasing process as service provider and as shipper or buyer, and he has experience in developing supply chain and transportation policy as well. In my conversation with Mark, we discuss some of the challenges of running logistics for an automobile manufacturer during a pandemic, as well as some of the silver linings. Following my conversation with Mark, I'll be joined by Dr. Inami Yu to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, Mark. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Yeah, so um, you're the first person we've had from the automotive industry on this podcast. So tell us a little about what your role is as head of logistics at uh, Fiat Chrysler. What does that entail? So I'm the head of uh, logistics, as he's pointed out, for uh, for FCA North America. Um, and uh, at FCA, the way the way we've structured logistics within the supply chain organization um you know, we really have the responsibility for sort of soup to nuts of the transportation and logistics function, the external transportation and logistics function um, at FCA, which means uh, my team's responsible for the uh, the network design and optimization um, activities, uh, as well as the procurement activities. Uh, a lot of times you see that separated into other, other areas like indirect uh, purchasing. And then finally, responsible for the operations. So, so anything related to the transportation function, whether it's for the parts and materials side, um, the uh, the service parts distribution side, or the vehicle distribution side, my team's responsible for um, you know working with the various constituents on the, the appropriate network design, uh, the purchasing the, the the network once we've designed it, and then on the parts and materials side as well as the vehicle side. We're responsible for the daily operations uh, as well, and um, and then we hand off the operations on the service part side to uh, the broader Mopar organization. Okay, so when you say procurement, you're talking about procurement of indirect of transportation and services, or other materials as well. No, procurement of, of uh, transportation and logistics services. So if you look at our our purchasing, you know, traditionally you've got your production purchasing and your indirect purchasing activities. We're uh, we're the third leg of that stool. Uh, production purchasing, obviously, being um, you know a, a huge spend for for automotive and, and FCA specifically, um, as well as the indirect spend. The size of our indirect spend is is, is large as well. Um, but the logistics piece um, is under supply chain management, and, and our organization, our broader organization, reports up through purchasing and supply chain management, as well as supplier operations. So those three activities are under, you know, one leadership structure within FCA. So so all the purchasing, you know, still stays under the purchasing umbrella. We just have all the transportation and uh, logistics services um, under our responsibility. Right. That, that makes sense. I mean, having the operations side of it, in addition to the procurement, gives you a more nuanced view of that than uh, I've seen a lot of organizations where it falls solely under the uh, chief purchasing officer, and it's a very different take on procurement. Yeah, and I think it goes back, um, you know, the better part of 20 years, 25 years is is structurally, um, we've always felt that it's been 
it's easier when you're involved in the planning process it's easier for you to, to generate a network design or an appropriate network design where you're where you're making the trade-offs between service and cost um, and then the, the the real nice piece of it is that it allows us to put purchasing people um, that have operational experience or design experience right so it's not just purely um, sort of a purchasing function as much as it's a transportation and logistics function where we're putting experienced people who've managed networks into the responsibility of, of, of buying the networks, designing the networks, making those cost versus service trade-offs, um, you know, that benefit the, the company, but also in, in a lot of cases help the supply base as well. Right. Because that's always a challenge. Right. And I've seen other organizations where they have dual VPs. Right. So someone from finance, someone from operations together. And I've always curious how that would work. But it sounds like having an operations person who has the experience and, you know, in that procurement decision makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you a question, though, about the network design. Is that uh, something that during the pandemic you're doing more frequently? Is that something done on the fly or is that something done annually? semi-annually what's the what's the cadence so so that's the best part of our structure in my opinion is that you know in other areas where you know network design kind of stands on its own and, and prepares for sourcing windows throughout the year or or new new product launches that type of thing you know we're we're embedded with each other mm -hmm. so as as our priorities change throughout the year um it allows us to sort of uh you know use our resources in a way that that best support you know, the mission, right? And so when right. when the pandemic hit for us, um, you know, we were firmly in the middle of planning for the launch of a brand new plant here in Detroit. The Mac Assembly plant is part of the Detroit Assembly uh, complex uh, here early next year. We were doing all the advanced planning for that. But when the when when the, the pandemic hit and, and we and we shut down operations as did all the other um, you know OEMs, uh, we were really able to use the, the design piece to sort of say, okay, what material do we have in transit? How long will we have to lay this material down? What, where are the best locations to maintain this material so that we can have an orderly startup? Uh, so, so the integration between our, our design team and our operations team really did a fantastic job, you know, kind of changing their playbook to sort of say, okay, let's stop looking nine months out of in terms of what we have to solve next year. Let's start looking six weeks out, four weeks out. And that really, you know, was beneficial because it allowed both the design team and the, and the operations team to focus on our immediate critical needs and those the needs of our, of our critical suppliers, by the way. And then it freed up our purchasing people to really, really focus on cash preservation and really focus on those things, you know, that allowed us to, to sort of maintain a cost structure throughout the shutdown, um, you know, that allowed us to, you know, us and our suppliers to come out of it uh, much quicker than we would have expected. Yeah, it sounds like having all three of those areas, the network design, procurement and operations under one roof made you much more nimble. I can't think of any other organization top of my head who puts them all together. It seems like it would make so much sense. Do you find that the people rotate between those or do you find that they tend to be different types of people you want in operations versus network? So, you know, we have a, we have a broad supply chain organization that starts, you know, with the demand planning, the traditional demand planning function, the SNOP function, you know, straight through to capacity right. uh, planning as well as supplier risk, right? So we've got a broad footprint 
to choose from and recruit from within our own house, let's say. Mm -hmm. But but if we just look at the logistics piece, because we have those three functions under under logistics, you know, we're able to bring people in and give them experience at an operating level. We you know we could introduce people to what we do as plant analysts, right? Where they're they're working directly with capacity planning with uh, the material logistics folks at the plants on the material handling side, really getting sort of uh, the baptism by fire in terms of what we do and how suppliers uh, performance and, and, and plant performance kind of impact our, our transportation and logistics network and, uh, and how efficient we become. You know, when they get that type of experience, there's a couple of things we can do from a um, from a talent development standpoint. They can move off and go do other things in the other areas of supply chain and broaden their scope, or they can move from an operating position within our own team into a purchasing position. You know, and then right. then then now they get to exercise. Hey, look, I, I know how this stuff works. How should I be designing? How should I be purchasing it? And then once they've done that. Um, again, they can go off and do something else and, uh, and or come back and do a design, you know, as a capstone logistics uh, role, they can do a design, you know, uh, uh, function as well, which gets them into more of the mid and long range planning, you know, working much more closely with, um, with um, purchasing uh, development and the advanced planning function, you know, across purchasing and supply chain. You know, and that really prepares them really well for for almost any role within supply chain and uh, and even on the cost management side. That must help you with retention. A lot of times if uh, the transportation is a very narrow function, the people don't stay that long or they, they stay too long. But it sounds like you're able to give them a broader view. So do you find that this is a breeding ground for people that to branch off to higher levels in supply chain within FCA? Or do they tend to stay within the, that, that whole function that you have? Well, I think I think we get a bit of both, right? I think there's a recognition, you know, obviously the last 20 years or 25 years, there's been a recognition of the importance of supply chain, broader supply chain. Sure. Um, you know, just by looking at the at the programs, I know when when I went through university and got my MBA in the late 90s, um, there really wasn't a lot of specific supply chain programs offered. And now you've got these world class supply chain programs, um, you know, from from fantastic schools. Uh, so. When we think about talent acquisition um, and, and retention and stuff like that, being able to um, to give people a broader experience, as well as maybe choosing a narrow experience within logistics, is I think a unique a, a unique thing that we have at, at Chrysler that that other other folks or at FCA that other folks don't have. Right. That, no, that makes sense. Let me let me shift to talk about transportation. That's the focus mainly of this podcast. Um, you said that uh, you handle the different segments. I assume that's uh, both inbound to plants, outbound to finished vehicles. Is there much movement between plants, like interplant moves, or is that is that a different handle by a different part of the organization? So, so there's a lot of nuances between what we okay. um, consider internal logistics and external logistics, right? So, so, so if you think of the internal logistics as being the plant material logistics function, um, you know, there's 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 an awful lot of material that flows. You know, from from the docks throughout the plants, but also from third parties, mm-hmm. um, you know, modular suppliers that have sequenced parts coming in from other areas. So, so a lot of those um, small networks, the extension of plant networks, um, those those are managed directly by plant material logistics, which would be still considered internal logistics for us. 
Um, and then on our side of the fence, the funny thing is, is that, you know, we have the same type of relationships. We have, in, we have integrated logistics centers on the external logistics side where we, we aggregate um, supplier uh, parts and materials into, into a distribution center, cross dock them, and then, you know, distribute them to the various plants. Um, but we do have a manufacturing footprint and we do have an assembly footprint. So, you know, we manufacture, you know, powertrain components. We manufacture um, stampings and, 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 uh, and body, body sides and stuff like that. Uh, and so we're, we're, res- we're responsible for the transportation between our manufacturing locations and our assembly locations. We have, we have a network of integrated logistics centers across North America that allows us to, you know, uh, consolidate um, milk run pickups of, uh, of smaller lot suppliers and, uh, and, and cross dock them appropriately, you know, between Mexico and the United States and Canada, um, you know, allows to more effectively manage our material flows and our, and our working capital. So if I look across the different segments, uh, you must treat them differently. You have a portfolio of different ways that you can handle that. So can you talk me through how you handle, say, the, uh, the inbound side of things versus the outbound number of carriers, contract type, or do you all manage them under the same framework? How do they differ? So if we, if we take a 30,000 foot view, mm-hmm. again, because we have this, this integrated look from a design purchasing and operations standpoint, you know, we really start everything with commodity strategies, no different than the, than, than the rest of our purchasing community, right? The way we define our commodity strategies, though, are by, are by modality rather than by part or purpose, right? So, so, you know, if you think about the inbound side, um, you know, we have a truckload commodity strategy. So anything related to our truckload network and our truckload buy, um, you know, we establish a commodity strategy that looks out 24 months. Uh, it incorporates, you know, the, the, the market intelligence and the, 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 the requirements that we have based on our long range plan. And uh, we pull that together in, in a, in a document that basically outlines, you know, this is the amount of truckload, you know, we, we service about 6,000 truckloads a day on average, um, you know, uh, in our inbound network. <clears throat> so this, this commodity strategy basically defines for all of our manufacturing and, and assembly plant locations, what the truckload needs going to look like. And then, then we, 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 we go to the next section, which really outlines, okay, so who are the players in this space? Right. And, and, and we use the commodity strategy to define, you know, the, the, the ratio of, uh, of lanes that certain carriers have, the, the regional nature uh, versus a national exposure of, of, of certain carrier bases, um, you know, how we grow with certain carriers, how we, how we eliminate certain carriers, how we define the scorecard. So if you think of that framework mm-hmm. uh, of the commodity strategy as being, you know, sort of the, uh, the playbook for how we engage, uh, design and engage with our, with our supplier partners. We do that for every commodity. So we've got, you know, uh, truckload on the inbound side. We've got haul-away truckload on the outbound side. We've got intermodal on the inbound side. We've got finished vehicle um, multi-levels on the outbound side. We have ocean container. We have freight forwarding. Um, you know, we so, so every, and we have warehousing. We have our integrated logistics centers everything related to every service that we buy. And, and in fact, with the evolution of some of the things that we do do, um, we've created commodity strat- strategies around things as small as what we refer to as drive away, which is, you know, 
manpower driving vehicles short distances between, you know, between certain service locations, right? So, um, so we do have a commodity strategy for almost every type of modality uh, or service that we use within the logistics um, uh, organization. So, okay, that, no, that that makes sense. And so, if we look at the, just the truckload inbound, you mentioned you had a two-year strategy. Does that mean you're setting up multi-year contracts here, or do, is this something you do every year, but you keep a two-year vision? We keep a two-year vision. So if we think about our, our commodity strategies, we, we tie our commodity strategies also to our budget planning processes as well. So, right. so we go we go out for a two-year approval on our commodity strategy. So we give visibility to to our leadership, um, you know, what we expect to see in the next two years. Right. What, what types of sourcing windows, you know, do we see over the next two years? And, uh, and you know, depending on the type of business, um, you know, and the commodity, by the way, we've got we've got different rules or different strategies for how we engage. You know, in certain cases, you know, we, we segment our uh, our commodities no different than than production purchasing. You know, is this a, is this a, a commodity or a strategic partnership? Is it selective competition or, you know, is it is it selective partnership? Right. So so when we start categorizing you know, some of the work that we do do, it makes it easier for us to sort of say, well, over this two year period, we may only have one major sourcing window, but we expect to have a lot of these micro market tests, right? Where right. we, where either we're taking advantage of, uh, of movement or opportunities in the marketplace, or we're responding to, um, you know, to, to, to movement from the supply base. So when you set this up uh, with, with a carrier, say on the inbound, uh, do you set up an evergreen contract for that? Or is it set up for a year after year contract? Or how do you, how does that work? So we use we we have we have some that have uh, that have evergreen um, you know relationships and then others where we have term relationships as well too. It really just comes down to um, you know the type of business or the type of equipment that's being used, right? So I see. if there's if there's if you know if you if you think about it on the Holloway side on the on the outbound vehicle side, you know those are single use types of equipment. Um, you know from a capital structure right. the. the Companies that we do business with, you know, need usually need more than a, than a, than a, a year or or an evergreen relationship to to justify the, the the investment in the equipment. Whereas on the on the pure truckload side or the dry van side, it's much more of a fungible asset. And uh, you know, as as the market changes, that we find that a lot of our carriers like the flexibility of, of evergreen contracts. And uh, you know, so we have we have, we you know we, we have certain areas where we've got. Um, you know, a number of evergreen contracts and a certain, right. you know, term contracts. But we're, um, you know, we, we utilize every kind of um, every kind of flavor of, uh, of relationship creation. And, and again, I do think that's that's beneficial when when you have the operations and the, and the purchasing and the design, because there's some of those wrinkles that you can't, you know, you can't just, you know, peanut butter spread everything for everybody because I think you end up right sub-optimizing your opportunities. Yeah, I, I think more, uh, there are a lot of shippers that have done that peanut butter approach. You know, everything's out to bid, everything's a one-year contract. But I think there's more nuance going on now looking at that whole portfolio. Um, so let me ask, do, do you consider, do you have any private fleet that you consider in this solution? And at the other extreme, do you plan for any of the use of spot or do you look at different types of contract in between? So are those two extremes part of this portfolio you look at, or do you stay outside of that? 
we're I think we're we're one of the few OEMs that have uh, you know private fleets both on the inbound and the outbound side, and and when I reference private fleets, you know the the inbound side where we have FCA transportation, we've got three terminals, uh, one in Detroit, which is our largest terminal, one in Windsor, and then one in Toledo, and um, and you know so that operations we've got a significant number of of trucks and trailers and and you know over three hundred drivers and uh, and it's the largest private um, inbound fleet, uh, in Michigan. And so, so we use that because as I explained earlier, we we're responsible for critical shipments, uh, at high frequency between our powertrain plants and our, our stamping plants to every one of our assembly plants. Right. So, so we've had a private fleet for over 70 years. Um, you know, we've committed to that fleet as part of our, as part of our plant labor negotiations as well. Um, you know, we, we, we believe that having a private fleet gives us a, um, somewhat of an advantage during times of crisis and times of, uh, of tight capacity. It gives us dedicated capacity, particularly on those critical lanes between, you know, a manufacturing or, uh, operation that can't stop producing right. just because there's an issue at an assembly plant. So we have to be able to keep on pulling off of that end of that line. And, uh, so, so we're very proud of the work that FCA transportation does and, uh, and, they have, as part of our commodity strategy, they have almost dedicated operations, right? As I, as sure. I you know, FCA to FCA locations, and, and they do do a number of our what we'd reference as over the road uh, work as well. And they and they've they've operated as frankly as additional capacity uh, and expedite capacity for you know when we've had commercial carriers fail uh, in other areas. So so it's been very good to have them there. And then we've got a very small fleet on the vehicle side. Um, a domiciled out of Windsor uh, that does mostly cross-border vehicle mixing traffic. So, you know, product that's that, that's produced in in Canada that comes across the border to be mixed in rail cars with uh, with all the other plants here in the Detroit Toledo area, and then bringing Detroit Toledo production back into Canada and mixing there. Got it. So, so again, as part of our commodity strategy, we have this dedicated capacity that we get to uh, we get to use. Um, you know, and that's, you know, that's where we, uh, you know, that's where we, we focus those operations on areas that have, you know, critical failure points and, you know, which is where we should be using our dedicated capacity. And then you talk about supplemental and like everybody, you know, everyone has the need for supplemental. Um, and, and we have flexibility within our, within our network again, you know, with how closely our operating teams work with purchasing. Right. When we do see an issue, uh, or we do see a, a you know an impending issue around capacity where we may need to have a, a backup lane or a backup carrier. Uh, we have the flexibility to do that as well too. Yeah. So when I've talked to other shippers who have a dedicated fleet, uh, the pandemic hit them pretty hard because some of their business would drop out and the traditional use of their dedicated fleet went away, and so they had to find other uses for it for that period, usually from the May to say mid June time period. Was that an issue or did that give you more flexibility? So, you know, my personal opinion is that it gave us more flexibility because as I remind everybody at FCA, you know, uh, FCA transportation is the one area of our organ of our company that didn't shut down during the pandemic. Mm. Um, They continued to they continued to to work and service plants um, by repositioning material um, in preparation for uh, for for an orderly startup. 
um, repositioning empty racks and containers. Uh, so, you know, when you've got suppliers that, that, that stopped in the middle of production and we've got all this material sitting in, in, uh, in, in trucks and containers that are already in these racks, as you, as, as you think about the startup, you need to, to really relocate all of this empty equipment to the right locations. You need to bring as many racks back as possible to the original supply base. Um, so, so, the, the, the FCA transportation folks were very busy doing that. And, and we, we, we were very conscious of keeping, you know, our commercial carriers uh, working as well, too. So, so both on the inbound and the outbound side, we continued, we repurposed the capacity that we needed, um, you know, to make sure that we continued to move material around the vehicle side, even though uh, we had states that were shutting down and, and dealers that were running out of space. Right. Um, we worked really, really well nationally with our business centers and our dealer base, you know, to keep that network running as well, too. And it wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't completely shut down, which, which again, from a, from an equipment standpoint, it allowed us as an industry to reposition all this equipment in, 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 in advance of, of the startup. And, um, and I think that it, um, that it worked out really well. And again, I've said this before, you know, automotive logistics, particularly on the vehicle side, you know, we're all part of one big shared asset asset network, right? So, so mm-hmm. more people work to keep their operations fluid, the better it is for the industry. And, uh, and I think we've, we use the tools at our disposal as an industry to do that. And I think how quickly everybody came back up, um, you know, really was a testament to that. Yeah. So, I mean, so let's shift and talk about the pandemic specifically. Um, things started happening in China in January, February, didn't really hit the states at a knowing at a large significance impact until March. When did you guys start realizing that there might be an impact and what steps did you take during those early stages and then throughout the pandemic? Uh, so, so I, for whatever reason, March 12th sticks out in my mind as the, <laughs> okay. as, you know, because, because as I'm sure as you're well aware, automotive, like a lot of manufacturing industries, you go 110 miles an hour until you don't go anywhere. Right. And, uh, right. and I think, I think we tried to, to continue to, to run, as long as we could. And, you know, I think it took us a while to figure out, you know, is this going to be a two week shutdown? Is this going to be a month shutdown or, or, or something that it turned out to be? So when we first looked at it, you know, our playbook is really relatively simple. When we know that we're going to shut something down, the first thing we do is, okay, look, let's, let's go back and talk to our supply base and see our, our pickup and delivery windows. What do we have in front of us? And, you know, let's stop putting material into the, into the supply chain. Right. So that was the first thing we did as, as we tried to, we, we, we talked with every one of the, the suppliers and, and our, our service providers and made sure that we had an orderly shutdown in terms of, you know, when do we stop picking up at, at, at suppliers? And then we quickly focused, at least in the transportation logistics side on, okay, let's take a look at what we have in transit mm-hmm. and cause that's going to continue to move to some point, you know, in, in the future. And we need to figure out where, where we're going to put all this. And so it, initially that first week we were working off the assumption that it was going to be a two week shutdown. Okay. And, you know, I think most of us just looked at it like, okay, well, this is no different than, than, than Christmas, right? So you're going to shut down for a week or two and then let's just do what we normally do. But then when it was clear, you know, in that second week that it was going to be at least a month, then we started thinking about, okay, where do we lay this material down? What's the critical material uh, in terms of 
difficulty for suppliers to then start up? And where should we be positioning that so that one, we're getting equipment and, and, and containers back as quickly as possible once we start up, but also that if you've got 14 days or seven days or six days of material in transit, you know, how do we how do we lay it down as close to the plant of usage as possible? And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so we spent a lot of time in March through mid-April, you know, doing that. And then from the mid-April to to mid-May, it really was okay. So once we know what our startup date is, you know, what happens 15 days before that? What happens 10 days? What happens five days? So um, it was a great um, it was a great exercise in uh, in crisis management for us and. Um, and I think we did a really good job coming out with that playbook. So, so your startup, you almost went in reverse then for that. So has, when did you go back to full um, production again? Or when, when was that date? Uh, it was the last week in May. It was that early? Yeah. Wow. I thought it would have been, I, I, I didn't realize that. Now, has the changing uh, situations in different states had much of an impact uh, the opening and closing because I know Michigan was pretty restrictive yeah. for some activities. Did that impact things? Yeah, well, that's and that's the beauty of being in the broader supply chain organization as well, too, right? Because because they they looked at the SNOP almost every day. They they worked with uh, with the supply base and, and and production purchasing to understand some of the constraints in the supply chain from a startup standpoint in terms of you know which states you know which suppliers in which states would be, you know, the last constraint, you know, or the last ones at the trough. And, and I think that's why you saw we waited till the end of May because, I mean, we tried to look at seven days out from mid-April on. We kept on trying to say, well, can we start in seven days? Can we start in seven days? And and it was really those constraints and the state restrictions, right, that um, right. that pushed us into May. And, and, and I think from our standpoint, we looked at the startup as we would a brand new plant launch, which means we didn't come back and say, okay, you're going to, you're going to be building 1200 units out of every, uh, out of every plant starting day one, right? We had to look at say, okay, well, we have to start slowly at these plants and we have to start slowly because more importantly for us was we had to keep all of our people safe. Right. And if you think about how close the workstations are within a, within a manufacturing plant, the work that our EHS and our manufacturing team did while we were shut down, to, to, to create this safe environment on how do you sh- change shifts with uh, with social distancing and six foot six feet differences and and temperature checks and and and, and a variety of safety and PPE protocols um, at every one of these plants uh, I mean it was it, it was amazing to see when we first came up you know we first came up on one shift and it was a it was a partial shift mm-hmm. so you know our our volume that you know those that week was going to be you know x and then every week we looked at it like a launch and we increased our capabilities increased you know until we got into mid-june and um and we were ahead of pace right so if if you look at at our priority number one of keeping our people safe throughout this pandemic um, you know, we haven't had a shutdown related to COVID-19. We, we haven't had, um, you know, critical issues related to, you know, to plants contamination or stuff like that. Um, we've been, you know, I'm very proud of, of how FCA and, and frankly, the rest of the automotive industry, you know, um, has done to keep, to keep everybody safe and bring everybody back to work and not, not create these starts and stops and starts and stops. Right. Once we started in June, mid June, it was very clear that, okay, we figured, 
we figured out how to how to how to bring people in and keep them safe now we need to figure out how to work really closely with our supply base to make sure that that they're able to to meet the needs of the demand and understand the constraints more effectively and and the supply chain planning team um, just did a fantastic job with uh, with our supplier delivery risk management team to 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 not just you know, highlight all that, but, but manage it day to day. So it made our life an awful lot easier. Makes sense. Because it actually created this level of stability that in some cases, in most years, you don't really see. So that stability, as I'm sure you're well aware, um, you know, really helps transportation and logistics, you know, costs and inefficiencies. So. Right, right. Well, let me ask one last question. Um, We talked a little bit about the pandemic, uh, but what, if any, silver linings have you found during the pandemic that you think will continue post-pandemic? Things that you, adoption of practices, whether it's decision-making, uh, technology, systems, management, what, what silver linings have you found? So, you know, this has been a real, it's been an interesting time for a company like, or for any anybody in a, in a heavy industrial, you know, industry that has, mm-hmm. um, that has a 70, 100 year, you know, culture, DNA behind it, right? Because I'll tell you what we learned. Had, had we gone out for two weeks or three weeks, I don't know that we would have learned very much. Right. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I just mean from a cultural standpoint, um, we would have gone back to normal if we could have gone back to normal. But this really, the, 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 the length of this pandemic really forced us to say, okay, look, do we struggle with, with work from home policies or, or, or alternate work locations? Yep, always have because we think everybody needs to be in the office because certainly everybody mm-hmm. needs to be in the plant. But this really showed that you can, you know, you send everybody out and give them the right technology. And our IT department did a fantastic job making sure that that we were all able to set ourselves up, um, you know, at home. And so, so the silver lining definitely is, you know, our ability to be productive um, remotely and 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 the, some of the time that we've gained uh, really being repurposed in in in, a, in some really creative ways to manage our business. That that's interesting. Mark, but let me ask you a question about that, because this is a common refrain. Um, it used to be, you know, I'm working from home meant I'm playing golf, <laughs> right? And I think those days are gone. Um, but then when I talk to some people, it seems like you can keep the ball rolling. You can keep operations going remotely and those things. People are worried about innovation, new ideas, because a lot of times that happens, you know, with a guy with a cup of coffee as you walk by someone or you jointly get together. Serendipity plays a role. Sure. Have you had an issue with that? Do you think innovation will continue or do you think you need to be present to let that percolate? What do you think? So I'm glad you asked that because because one of the things that for the silver lining that we have, you know, my, I really think that that what we need to be focusing on when we do get back together and, and when we use the opportunities to be in the same room with each other really has more to do with cultural maintenance, right? Is, mm. is the ability to, you know, the reason we've been so successful in the last six months is because we had, you know, mature people in the roles that they've been doing. We haven't had to onboard people and, and sort of teach them the FCA way or, or teach them our culture, right? And I think that the challenge coming out of this with this silver lining is we need to figure out how to better, you know, maintain our, our innovative and entrepreneurial cu- culture. That's part of FCA's DNA. Right. That, that makes sense. It's, it's funny because I talked to more people and the idea of having a long, you know, 30, 40 minute hour commute to check emails in your cube makes no sense. Right. Um, but this, it almost mirrors, it's really interesting what I'm 
seeing up here at MIT when I teach, uh, because we've had to teach remotely since March, but we also teach some in, in person and you can have asynchronous or synchronous online courses. And what we're finding out, they're not all good or bad. They have different purposes. And so if what I'm hearing you say is if I'm going to be face-to-face, make it worthwhile to be face-to-face. We don't need to all come to a, a common room to check our emails or to do our phone calls. So it seems like we're just, it's another tool in your tool belt, when to use the face-to-face, when to use, you know, your alone time, because sometimes you can be much more productive at home when you can concentrate. No, absolutely. It's, does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And it's it's one of those areas that as we learn through the pandemic to figure out how to be productive at home um, and, you know, what that silver lining was, we're going to have to figure out the other side of that, the, like I said, the cultural maintenance piece. And, right. and I think that may be a little bit harder to learn because, you know, every department's going to be different, right? Makes sense. Well, Mark, thank you so much for talking. I really enjoyed talking with you and learning a little bit more about the automotive supply chain at FCA. Well, Chris, thank you for having me. I, I, I appreciated the time and, uh, and, and had a great time on the conversation. Great. Well, everyone stay tuned for the truckload market update with Dr. Enam Eub. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for October 22nd, 2020. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are up 2%. Spot rates down 2.5%. Yes, it is down 2.5%. Replacement rate is positive 10%. This means that the new contract rates are about 10% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are up 1%, spot rates down by 5%, and replacement rate is positive 10%. Finally, on the intermodal side, active rates are flat, spot rates are up 1%, and replacement rate is positive 2%. All right. So it looks like intermodal is not having a net re- replacement rates nearly as high as spot as, as a drive-in or temp control. What what are your big takeaways for this week? I think the big takeaways is the the spot rates uh, showing a turn and and starting to drop, um, and it, it doesn't seem like an anomaly. But we will definitely uh, keep a watch on that. And uh, the other one is um, the active rates are continuing to. Uh, increase, uh, which is, uh, you know, typically we see that, uh, you know, for the for the long, the almost three, four months of act, spot rate being that high, uh, the active rates are continuing to go up. Right. They, they kind of get pulled. The spot rates for the canary in the coal mine, and then we're going to see this rise in, in contract rates. But this 10% new rate differential for both temp control and drive-in, how do you think this differs between asset-based versus non-asset-based carriers? 
what we have seen is that the asset-based carriers are having a much milder increase, uh, whereas the brokers uh, are actually are taking the most increase, and, and and which makes sense because they, on the other side, they buy it from the spot market, so therefore they they have to you know cover their bases, and the predictability for them is the is the hardest. So they they have been taking the most increase. Right, and so the biggest. Uh the, the shippers that are most affected right now would certainly be those in the middle of procurement events. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think they need to keep a very close watch on what's happening to the market, uh, especially what's happening in the spot market, uh, so that they can, you know, uh, accordingly maneuver the bids. Right. And it might be that they ratchet that, uh, you know, the proportion that goes non-asset versus asset, which has been over the last, gosh, 10 years, more and more shipper volume is going to non-asset based. I think that might ratchet back a little bit in this tight market, and carriers shippers might look to increase their percentage of loads going under asset-based carriers. But uh, we'll see how that turns out. Any any other last words there, Eno? No, that's it. I think we'll keep a close eye on it, and uh, it's a good news. The spot market's cooling down. Hopefully, finally, finally. Okay. Well, that concludes this week's truckload market update. Thanks, Eno. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Inam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Find, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.